A number of years ago, I made my first trip to Israel. And it was there that I encountered my first Orthodox Jews. I grew up in a um, very non-Jewish suburb of Philadelphia. And the only Jews I knew were either cousins or the other kids at the Reformed Synagogue. And all of a sudden, I was in Jerusalem. And for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of these people. <clears throat> and I actually, <clears throat> I actually had opportunity to converse with a few of them, a little bit of interaction, and I found them to be surprisingly intelligent. And it kind of made me curious. Like, you know, what's, what's going on with these people? What are they hanging on to these old customs for? And I've always been a kind of intellectually curious type, and I was burned out on touring, so I decided I would spend a few days in some classes and ask some questions. On my second day of classes, a woman came up to me and asked me, have you ever been to an Orthodox wedding? I said, no, a few days ago some Arabs invited me to a Bedouin wedding, but I've never been. <coughs> but I've never been to an Orthodox Jewish wedding. That sounds also like an interesting sociological experience. And, um, <laughs> and that it is. And she said, well, there's one happening tonight, and I can bring you if you want. Just like borrow a skirt from somebody and meet me outside at 6 o'clock. So there I was, and we went to my first Orthodox wedding. And obviously, the first thing that I saw and it struck me when I entered the hall was, of course, the bride. And the bride, like every other bride I've seen, religious, not religious, Jewish, not Jewish, was, of course, beautiful and radiant. But there was something different about this one. I don't know how to describe what it was, but there was a kind of an inner beauty, almost a purity and an innocence that radiated from her that to my mind made her all the more beautiful. And I commented on this to my self-appointed tour guide. And she said to me, well, it could be that she looks pure and innocent because she is. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> And she said, well, you may not have heard this before, she said very hesitantly, but in Judaism, people don't have premarital physical relationships. So I said, oh, well, you know, to tell me the truth, that doesn't come as a big surprise. I kind of assume that in most old-fashioned religions, you know, premarital sex is probably not sanctioned, right? So she said to me, well, the truth is, it's not just premarital sex that people don't do. They don't do premarital anything. So I said, oh. So you're basically telling me that this couple is getting married after only like hug hugging and kissing and nothing more? <laughs> so then she dropped the bomb <laughs> and said, God's honest truth is... <laughs> This couple has never hugged or kissed. They've never even touched. And at that point, my jaw dropped open, and I spent the rest of the wedding staring at this woman. <laughs> Thinking, what institution did you attend that so successfully brainwashed you that you are willing to marry a man whom you have never even kissed? This is absurd. This is beyond anything I could have ever imagined from this part of the world, you know. But I was also, as, as, as appalled as I was, I was also very intrigued. And as a matter of fact, I was so intrigued <laughs> that I continued going back for more classes, and, and this whole area of relationships became a major concern, a major area of inquiry for me at that time. And, you know, God has a great sense of humor. And a few years later, sure enough... <laughs> I found myself standing under the chuppah, about to marry a man whom I, too, had never kissed. <laughs> and we've been happily married ever since, thank God. <laughs> um, but I did a lot of thinking about this issue. And in the course of thinking about it, I basically kind of arrived at my own understanding of what God may have had in mind, so to speak. What could be going on behind this very foreign practice? of having no physical contact before you get married. And when I found that nobody was presenting it this way in the schools, or to tell you the truth, at that point in time, nobody was really talking about it a whole lot, which to me seemed to be a rather large problem since everybody was doing it, you know. Like people were fooling around and nobody was talking about it in the schools, so that's what made me write my book, The Magic Touch. 
And I want to share with you just some of that perspective today. What, again, I stress it's only one perspective of many that one can take on this issue, but it's meaningful to me. I hope it will be meaningful to you. And I stress that the wisdom I have found to be inherent in this approach to relationships is relevant to everybody, whether you're Orthodox, not Orthodox, or intend to be Orthodox, Jewish, not Jewish. I've had non-Jews in my class. They're always welcome. Because I really believe this universal wisdom, and you can dilute it and make it applicable in a, in a diluted form, so to speak, to wherever you happen to be in your life, however you're conducting your social life presently. Since we're all Jewish, so I'll start with something Jewish. Okay? Um, probably most of you are familiar with the famous Midrash and the creation story. Very well known. That says that the first person who was created was, in fact, not a man, but really a, an androgynous human being comprised of male and female joined together. Then God came along and said, this isn't good, and separated them into male and female. And the obvious question is here, if God wanted to be a man and a woman in the world, why didn't he plunk down a man over here and plunk down a woman over there? Why go the circuitous route of getting them together and then separating them? Is there a mistake, a rethinking involved? Is it true, as the popular feminist Fetton in the 70s put it, Adam was a rough draft, you know, and it had to be like in a rework afterwards? I always liked that one. But anyway, what this midget is trying to tell us is that on a very deep level, obviously, that a man and woman are really conceived of as one being, as one unified creature. And now, in a separate state, we have the memory of having once been one and also a very deep longing to return to that more natural state of being, to fuse and connect with somebody. And the fact is that this desire for fusion underlies a tremendous amount of behavior in human relationships. I'm going to give you a very unpleasant example. I always debate whether give this, but I just, just for the sake of illustration, then I really want to leave it. But when I used to live in the old city of Jerusalem, a friend of mine went out walking early one morning outside the walls in a somewhat deserted place with her, walking her dog with her husband. And they came upon the scene of a very recently, a very recent rape. And the woman was still there, and the man was still there. The attacker was still there. Even though he saw these other people approaching, he was still not fleeing. And he was saying to her, but I want to be your boyfriend. Now, I have been schooled in this feminist mode of thought that sexual attack is a form of violence against women in which basically something else is being used in place of a gun. Okay, to put it kind of basely. But what this told me was that in some forms of sexual attack, you really could be dealing with a very desperate, sick person who does not know how to connect up to more healthy, normal means and therefore has to resort to violence in a last-ditch, desperate attempt at fusion with somebody. Okay? For the sake of illustration, now let's leave that. I really believed very much when I was in college, in college campus in the late 70s that the behavior on campus, which I hear has only gotten considerably worse, you know, when we were in the 70s, the people who were being very promiscuous, at least they called it a one-night stand. And it had an, an aura of a little bit of glamour to it, like you were breaking norms. You were crusading for a new, uh, you know, kind of social system of greater freedom and self-expression. Like it meant something ideologically. Today you have this very banal hooking up. There's no ideology behind it. It's just so boring sounding, you know, Okay. And so things apparently gotten considerably worse. The fun has gone out of what used to, people used to at least think was fun. But anyway, underneath all of that, I, I was sure it was not just hormones and hedonism. And in fact, I kept meeting a lot of very sensitive people who really wanted a genuine relationship with somebody else, but society was not giving them the time to establish anything real before they were expected to hop into a physical relationship. And so they had to end up satisfying or trying to satisfy themselves with something very superficial and transient when their neshama, their soul, is really craving something deeper. The truth is there is no quicker or more effective way to get close to somebody quickly and instantaneously than through physical contact. And this has been proven true in completely non-sexual situations. Besides the examples I mentioned in my book, in Israel they did some research on the power of touch a number of years ago. And what they did is they sent somebody to use a public telephone booth with a pile of asimonim. And if you were ever in Israel back before they had these little magnetic telecarts now, you said a pile of telephone tokens. And you go to make a long-distance call and you'd like, you know, put your pile of them there on the phone and you keep like plopping them in. So they told this person, leave your asimonim there when you leave. So the person would do it and he would depart. Meanwhile, somebody else in the street would come along, 
use the telephone, and of course see this pile of, of telephone tokens there and pocket them. Then the first person was instructed to come back and say, excuse me, I left my telephone tokens here. Did you perhaps see them? They found out that in the course of asking that question, if you just touch the person casually on the shoulder, excuse me, did you see my telephone tokens? Nothing more than that. He was much more likely to have them returned to him. Waiters and waitresses have told me, touch somebody, when you give them a bill at the end of the meal, you will get higher tips. Okay? Foolproof. Reform youth group leaders know this very well. I could raise your hair with some of the games they play in reform youth groups today. Okay? But one of them, right, one of them, just to give you one of the tamer examples, is called hug and kiss. And what you do, I was just told by these 16-year-olds, is you put everybody in a circle, boys and girls together. In the middle of the circle, you put a guy and there's a girl who is his defender. And there's another girl who's outside of the circle. And her job is to break through the circle. Like she has to keep going around until she can find a place where she can break through. Get past the girl who's defending this guy and get to the guy and hug him and kiss him. Okay, so the purpose of this game obviously is to get everybody in physical contact. Get them all warmed up. They're called icebreakers. And at the end of the whole weekend of playing games like this, this girl says to me, you know, I felt so close and connected to everybody in the group. But then, all of a sudden, I realized I didn't really know any of them any better. That's exactly it. Touch has this neat way of kind of leapfrogging over your intellect, over even your emotions, to get to a very, very pristine, almost primeval place in you that wants to be touched, that wants to feel close to somebody. And it creates this great feeling of immediate contact. If this is true in non-sexual situations, although to be perfectly honest, a lot of these games and these reformed youth groups and other youth groups play, I don't think putting a bunch of 16-year-olds, for example, in a room and blindfolding them and telling them to grope around and try and identify one another, okay? I don't, wouldn't call these games non-sexual personally, okay? But, okay, they're not explicitly sexual. Take touch and add to it something a little bit more than a casual pat on the shoulder, okay? And intense attraction between a man and a woman accompanying this something more than a little casual pat on the shoulder. And a lot more is going on. What might have been called subliminal manipulation in terms of getting a higher tip is now a much stronger undercurrent of, of something more powerful. Okay? And from this point on, everything that I'm saying is about ten times more relevant to women than to men. It's actually kind of nice to address an all-female audience in this. Because I always lose about a third of the men. <laughs> okay? I did a little sensitivity check on some men, some high school guys actually, at a school I spoke at recently, just to see if they were going to hear anything that I was about to say. Okay? And the answers are really very amusing. I said two questions, guys, just to see how much men and women are different. Multiple choice, A or B. Okay? First question, why do you date? A, to get close to someone. B, to score. Okay? About... 75% of the men put their hands up for to get close to someone. I thought, ah, oh, exceptionally sensitive group. Even more, but 85% to get close to someone. I was very impressed. Second question. You're in a restaurant at a table. In walks the most beautiful girl you've ever seen in your life. Stunning, knockout, dressed to kill, gorgeous, perfect tan, whatever. Sit down at the table next to you with her friend. You're already figuring, how can I get her number and ask her out, right? How can I break into this conversation? She opens her mouth and says the most stupid, insensitive, boorish thing you've ever heard come out of anyone's mouth in your life. A minute later, she opens her mouth again, same thing. A minute, a third time. Question. How many of you still want to go out with her? Okay? Now, this is the same group, 80% of whom said they want to go out for emotional closeness. 90% of the group 90% said they still want to go out with her. Okay? Now, <clears throat> why am I telling you this? Probably most of us as women know that when a guy opens his mouth and says something really idiotic, his attractiveness plummets. Is that not true? <laughs> okay? Now, what does this also mean about women? Because we need to have a little bit more of a fusion of the physical attraction and something feeling like there's something more going on, something emotional... What that means is that we will use our imaginations and during all that time when this gorgeous man is not saying anything stupid, we will invest him with all sorts of imaginary virtues so that we can feel that maybe he does have a little something upstairs and we can feel a little bit more complete about where our hormones are taking us. 
In other words, women are much greater victims, I feel, of self-deception in relationships than men are. And as a result of this, they suffer the consequences. So what I'm saying is this. When a woman, even more than a man, gets physically involved in a relationship, she begins to experience the beginning of a bond, of a connection, even on an unconscious level. And even if she's been told that this should be strictly casual and it's not cool to be anything more than casual, I don't care what she says, I don't believe them. I think women have been taught to lie to themselves in this generation. A bond is happening and they know it. Something is happening there. And in the wake of that bond, a few things begin to happen which are not good for a relationship at this stage for sure. The first one is that your objectivity basically goes down the drain. Do you all know how non-objective we are even on a visual level, just when we look at somebody? Okay? Imagine yourself at a party. There are two men sitting opposite you, one of whom you find very attractive, the other not at all. Okay, you say something, they both make an intelligent response. Out of whose mouth is it likely to sound a bit more intelligent? They both make a joke. Out of whose mouth is it likely to sound a bit more entertaining? We tend to want to read more positive qualities into somebody who also happens to be attractive. This is human nature. Now, when you add touch, as far as objectivity goes, it's like you're a goner. Okay? It really just goes out the window. Now, think about this for one second. Okay? I don't see anybody in this room here who's not at the age where you couldn't get married in the somewhat near future. Okay? There's no 14-year-olds here who are just still dating for fun, I assume. Okay? Nobody would be grossly upset if in the next year they happened to meet the person that they might want to spend the rest of their life with. Nobody would say, darn, if only I'd met you 10 years from now. Okay? So, that being the case, you really have to think about this. If you're doing the one thing from early on in a relationship, which more than anything else is going to make it impossible for you to see your partner clearly, and at some point you might have to ask yourself, is this the person I want to spend the rest of my life with? Or even, is this the person I want to continue to see exclusively for some period of time? Okay? It's dangerous. It's foolish and it's dangerous. And of course, none of us think that way because it feels good now and it's gratifying now. Okay, but the last thing you want to do is make the most important decision you're ever going to make in your life with blinders on. And unfortunately, I think this is how most people make them today. I'm kind of surprised the divorce rate isn't higher than it is. I think the fact that a third of the people have, you know, staying together in marriages these days is probably pretty impressive. A cousin of mine once came to me. She lived here in the Upper West, lived on the Upper West Side. She'd been living with her boyfriend for two years. They got married three months after the wedding. She comes to me and she says, I don't know if my relationship is going to last. I'm like, Ellen, what are you talking about? You've only been married for three months. You knew this guy for two years. This is back when I thought you had a better chance of staying married if you'd lived together first. All the research is showing the exact opposite for very complex reasons. That's another class, okay? But what could you have possibly discovered that you never saw before? And her answer left me absolutely speechless. This is an intelligent woman, by the way, a bright woman with a good-paying job that works, okay? Ivy League graduate, okay? She said to me, I just don't know if he's intellectual enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Three months after the... I don't know if he's... In, I, I, was, I didn't know what to say to her. And I, at that point, I was already observant, and I knew, like, I could go out with a guy and within two hours maximum, and that's if he's quiet, you know, I could, <laughs> I could begin to surmise that this guy is intellectual enough for me, too intellectual. Like, he's not, you know what I mean? How did this happen? Okay, I happen to know that they were very physical from very early on in their relationship. And as soon as you start getting physical <clears throat> in a relationship, it's as if this rose-colored screen descends between you and the other person. And from that point on, and you have to realize this, Everything that you say or do and that he says or do gets filtered through this screen. And the screen accentuates the positive and it de-accentuates the negative. In, in, in short, once you're physically involved with somebody, particularly if you're a woman, you see what you want to see and you don't see what you don't want to see. The problem is, is the screen can't stay down forever. If it could, you could live a blissful illusion of a marriage, but you'd never know. It's kind of like never waking up from a good dream. You know what I mean? The problem is, is that usually, starting about the morning after the wedding ceremony, 
Okay, usually before you get to your first Sheva Brachas, okay, all right, the screen is beginning to lift, notch by notch, like this. And usually when I say about the first three weeks maximum of being married, it's lifted. For very complex psychological reasons, someone's two colors don't really completely show until the security of commitment is there. And again, this is part of another class. Okay, but you'll have to take my word for it. Psychologists have documented this reality. And it's a little bit frightening. Because what that means is that if you haven't done your homework properly, you could be in some, some really unpleasant surprises. Okay? So I would like to argue, and I'll tell you, this is what convinced me first. Before I, I was raised an atheist. Before I believed in either God or Torah, when I heard about this system of dating, I was like, God help me if I ever have the strength to do this. <laughs> this makes sense. Protect me against myself. You know what I mean? If this is the place I have to say foregoing the pleasure of a physical relationship now so I can know I'm going to be able to have one for the rest of my life with the right person, it's worth it. That's how I felt as a 22, 23-year-old woman. Okay? So I urge people to think about this. It's a very important thing. Okay? Secondly, I think there's a very big confusion today between love and something else that other people call love. Now, most of you are going to think, oh, she's talking about infatuation. But I'm really talking about something different than infatuation. And I'm going to explain it in the words of a rabbi that I know. Sorry, I've got a piece of ice in there. But this rabbi was addressing a bunch of... Um, probably mostly non-religious Hebrew University students in Jerusalem. And he said like this, I want to explain to you about the Jewish approach to love, he said. I love chicken. Some of you have probably heard this before, with fish maybe, right? Okay. I love chicken. I don't know what my wife does to that chicken, but boy, it comes out so tasty. And Friday night, I can't wait to sit down at the table and eat that chicken. I love chicken. But does that mean that I love the chicken? Of course not. If I loved that chicken, I wouldn't want to eat it. I'd be a vegetarian, okay? You know, I'd eat tofu on Friday night. So I'd build my chicken in a little house in the backyard, put a sweater on it, take care of it. It should be warm, comfortable, okay? So what am I saying when I say, I love chicken? What I'm saying is, I love the way that I feel when I eat chicken. In other words, I love who? Me. Then he turned to a girl in the front row and he said to her, Now, tell me something. When a guy says to you, I love you, what kind of love does he mean? And there was dead silence until the cynic in the back of the room goes, you love chicken, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably true. When I was in high school, I had a good friend who was going out with a guy and he broke up with her, okay? I found out later that the reason was that she didn't want to go all the way with him. So he broke up with her. There's greener pastures. And she stayed home the whole day from school. Her mother didn't make her go to school because she was crying so hard at the end of this relationship. Given the reason why they broke up and what that says about how deep their love was, okay, I think it's reasonable to surmise that the reason that she was spending that whole day crying at home was not so much that this wonderful person was never going to be in her life again but that she was never going to get to feel as wonderful as she felt when she was with him. He made her feel desirable. He made her feel attractive. Her, her, her. This is not love. Love is other-oriented. In the words of a great actress, she said, you know what the difference is between romantic love, that kind of illusory kind, and real love? She said, in romantic love, you want the other person. She said, in real love, you want the other person's good. Okay? So I asked this bunch of teenage boys the other day. I said, how many of you feel that you've ever really loved a girl? So like two hands went up. Okay? So I, I picked one of them who I thought was more sensitive. I said, I just want you to realize that, give yourself a little quiz. If you really loved her, and if for whatever reason you came to the conclusion, for I don't know what reason, that she would really be better off without you, you'd break up with her. That's called loving the other person. Okay? The problem is, obviously, that, you know, since touch feels so much better than eating chicken, most people will acknowledge that, 
the minute you start getting in a physical relationship, it becomes very, very to dis- difficult to distinguish what am I feeling? Is it actual love for this other person, for who he is, his essence? Or is it kind of like a blurred mixture of some of that and how good I feel when I'm with him? So I would like to suggest that one of the best ways to know if you're loving the other person and to give yourself an opportunity to develop genuine love with him is in fact not to allow yourself the pleasure of getting physically involved with him so you can see if the feelings that you're feeling are really about who he is. Okay? What I'm trying to get at in the end basically is this. Can I just borrow, some, can I just borrow your watch just so I can kind of keep an eye on the corner? Thanks. Just remind me to give it back. Okay. What I'm trying to say is this. What happens in my observation in most relationships today is that the physical side enters in fairly early and it drags feelings of connection, even love, and particularly on the woman's side, commitment often in its wake. It might not be commitment like we're going to get married, but because something has happened here, like we're going to at least stay together for a while, there's something here, okay? And this might all be based on air, on the positive sensations of skin against skin. What the Jewish world says is like this, stop, hold on, wait. There are no shortcuts to intimacy. The expression, a shortcut to intimacy, is in and of itself a contradiction in terms. Intimacy is something that is built up in time, with time, over time, with investment of emotions and thought, interaction, communication. And there's no shortcut to, uh, to achieve this, least of all through getting physically close with somebody. Keep this stuff on the side. Build up a relationship that stands on its own two feet. It doesn't lean on the physical side like a crutch to support it. Where if I took the physical side of the picture, the relationship would collapse. Okay. Then, once you have that bond, once you have that mutual appreciation and respect and, and even love, then, and we would say at the point of marriage, but when I speak to um, other audiences, say, look, however, however long you can hold out, okay, at the point at which you allow physical closeness to enter, it will be expressing something real rather than determining something illusory. I have never in my life met a woman who says she does not want to be loved for who she is, she does not want to be respected, she doesn't want something real. We just allow ourselves to delude ourselves into thinking that we can get the real thing if we dangle our sexuality on a hook and then the guy bites that bait and now that I've got him roped in, now let's see if I can get him to love me. It doesn't work this way, ladies. This is completely backwards. It's not the way to do it. You're lucky. It may happen, but don't count on it. The way to have an intimate relationship with somebody is to force him. To force him to begin to develop an appreciation for who you are. And the best way to do that is to keep the whole physical business on the side until you really have something between the two of you that it can express. Okay? Now, up till now, I've stressed basically the, the more positive aspects of what you stand to gain, I feel, from at least holding back as long as possible, and again, if possible, till marriage, which is what we believe in, what Halakha says to do, Jewish law, you know, before you get physical. I want to talk a little bit about the other side, because unfortunately, I feel that people basically think, well, okay, so I'm not going to get these benefits, but I'll just go about my life and everything will still be okay. I won't have the benefits, but I won't lose anything either if I don't choose to, uh, to refrain more from physical relationships. Unfortunately, it's not true. There is a very serious price worth considering that we pay every time we get physically involved with somebody. And in the society that we come from, it's not even considered a price. But to the Jewish mind, there definitely is a price involved. Okay? I once didn't want to teach this class because the group was very immature. It was guys and girls together, a bunch of like basically 17-year-old secular boys, and they always ask you these questions like, hey, are you guys allowed to? And I just didn't really feel like dealing with it. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, it's a compromise of my tzniu to have to deal with that. I didn't want to do it. So I basically said to this rabbi, and I said, listen, let's divide the class. I know this is not traditionally done in this program. I will adjust the women. You take the men. You handle them however you want to handle them, and good luck to you, right? Okay? And I said, after the class, I went over to him and I said, so tell me, what did you tell this bunch of completely non-religious, healthy, hormonal, 17-year-old boys about why in the Orthodox world we don't have any physical contact before marriage? He said, well, 
I did not talk about maintaining your objectivity to make the right choice and building up genuine love and, you know, connecting on a deeper level. Okay? He said, I just laid it on the line. I said to them like this. I said, guys, when you get married, you are going to have had, I'm sucking, cook your bet, I'm with Aleph at the bottom. Okay? I'm sucking, cook your bet, I'm with Aleph at the bottom. Okay? Last stop, I said, the boys all ran out to the library after <laughs> It's written in the Talmud. That when a divorced man and a divorced woman remarry each other, there are four people in bed on the wedding night. In other words, she brings with her her memories of her past husband. He brings with him his memories of his past wife. There are four people in bed. And he looked at this crowd of secular guys and he said to them, You know, (laughs) you might think you're having a good time, but I feel sorry for you. Because when you get married, the bed is going to be awfully crowded. <laughs> you know, it kind of reminds me of that kid's song, remember? <laughs> and they all rolled over and one fell out. There were six in the bed and a little roll over. Anyway, <laughs> I don't want to say this. Anyway, and then, right? And then, if that wasn't enough, he just really wanted to drive the point home. He said what is basically a kind of synopsis of the second line of the Gemara, which I'm too embarrassed to repeat right now. But he said, besides, do you really want her thinking, Tom was better? What he's saying is that we are all the product of our experiences and we bring our memories with us and they're there for the rest of your life. Now, this may be a depressing thought for people for whom there's already water under the bridge, so to speak. Okay, and obviously, there is a tremendous amount of... of of uh, how say, fleshing out your brain and your memory that, ha- that is, occurs if there's any significant space between the time when you have your last relationship and the time that you get married. Okay? But you still have to realize that at least not, don't add to this. Okay? See, I have never met a teenager in my life who has told me, you know, before I decide if I'm going to get physical with a guy, I ask myself, five or ten years from now when I'm probably married to somebody else, Am I going to be happier or less happier that I did this with this guy? You know? But maybe they should. Okay? So point, point for consideration. So basically, what I'm saying all in all is that I feel that you have a much greater chance of going into marriage with more emotional wholeness and achieving instead of a body-to-body connection, a genuine soul-to-soul connection with your partner. If you create an arena in which the souls can actually meet without the interference of the physical side. And that's what this is all about. Now, there's another benefit I just want to maybe point out. Um, and that is of increased sensitivity. And again, one of the most beautiful things that I found after becoming religious and after people become religious in general is that because of this time that generally elapses between your secular life and the time you find the person you want to marry, you get tremendously resensitized to the power of touch and the beauty of it to the point where it definitely means something more than what it ever could have meant before. But I once met a girl who understood this sensitivity issue more powerfully than anybody I'd ever met. This girl was in a class of mine that taught in Jerusalem, and afterwards she comes up to me and she says, you know, can I talk to you for a couple minutes? Experience has taught me that when an 18-year-old girl tells me she wants to talk to me for a couple minutes, we're talking at least half an hour, right? So I said, you know, I, I kind of have to get home. Why don't you come to my house? I didn't really expect you to come. I lived in the old city. It was two bus rides away. She came. Two bus rides, dark alleyways, late at my house late at night. She really wanted to talk to me privately. The phone was not good enough. She comes in, closes the door. Can we go into your bedroom so your husband doesn't hear? Fine. Can we pull down the shade? Pull down the shades. I mean, okay. But she wants to tell me something very personal. So she says to me, you know, I've always been a good religious girl from a good religious home. And I, I tried as best as I could to always keep all of Jewish law, and I've always been Shomer Nagia. Now they just call it being Shomer. Everyone knows what you mean. Are you Shomer? I'm Shomer. Are you Shomer? Okay. <laughs> okay. In South Africa, they call it Bliyadayim. Okay, which means without hands. Right? I was actually thinking, of, a friend of mine actually said you should call your book, Look, Ma, no hands. <laughs> okay. But anyway, so, um, she said, I've always been Shomer Nagia. But, she said, this year, I, I'm in Israel and I'm starting to date. Seriously, I'm thinking already about marriage. I'm 19 years old. And I've been going out with this boy that I really like. And the only thing is, 
he's not quite as religious as I am. He's not quite as strong as I am. And we've been going out, and he's been liking me more and more, and we've been getting closer, and I, I really feel something very nice here. But he's also been saying it's getting really hard for him to be Shomer Nagia with me. And he really respects me, and he knows that maybe it's even the right thing to do, but it's just so hard, and he just really wants to kiss me. So she tells me, a week ago we were in this kind of romantic place, and there wasn't really some, there weren't so many people around, and we were feeling really close and connected, and all of a sudden, he leaned over and he kissed me. And I let him. This guy kissed her and she let him. This is a big thing that she came to tell me. Then she hung her head like this forlorn little puppy. And she said to me, And now, now I feel like used merchandise. Okay? Now, can you imagine what I felt like when I heard this? Because at that point, I had been religious maybe six, seven years. And the secular voice, which is still always there, like I still never forget the Beatles tunes, like it lives, you know what I'm saying? Okay, it gets drowned out as each year goes by by the other side of me, obviously. But, you know, we don't believe in this born-again stuff, you know. It's like I have 22 years of a secular history behind me, and the secular voice was right there, and right on target it said, Honey, <laughs> don't kill yourself over this, you know, like, so a guy, this is what you're telling me? You feel guilt-ridden because a guy, can I put you behind glass in a museum? Extinct species? You know what I'm saying? Okay? You know? But then, thank God, I have to say that very shortly, like within a few seconds, the religious voice in me jumped right in, okay, and said, you know what? She's right. On the level of sensitivity that, that she's at, she's right. She now recognizes that the man that she marries will no longer be the first man that she's going to kiss. And she feels she's lost something, and she has. For her, she has. And I felt like crying for her. I really did. But on the other hand, I was so touched. I was, I felt like I was in awe of this person. I was like, wow. Such a sensitivity. It's so beautiful. And, you know... I thought it was just so precious. A lot of people might think that this is crazy. Other people might think it's sweet. You know, I think it's enviable. Because if this girl could feel so much what she lost in this little episode, she's going to be just as sensitive to everything that she has once she's married. And I think this is something that Judaism encourages. And, I, and again, I'm glad to say this is something that definitely can be regained, even if it wasn't always there from the beginning. Never maybe what it would have been, you know, she'll never be able to feel exactly the same maybe as she would have if she'd never kissed anyone before her husband. But God willing, if enough time elapses, she'll get a lot of that sensitivity back. So I want to I conclude and leave some, time, leave some time for questions. Actually, I still have some more time here, don't I? Actually, no, you know what I want to say, actually? I want to actually make this more relevant to married women as well. Okay. Okay, now that I've set the scene, Okay. <laughs> Yay, yeah, she's a married woman. <laughs> okay. Once you... <laughs> what people don't realize is this is really very much the same philosophy that underlies Sarah de Mishpacha and the family purity laws. The whole point of refraining from physical contact when you're dating is to build up a spiritual bond that the physical side can later express. And what makes the physical side so powerful is that, again, exactly what it's expressing. I've pointed out very often to secular women who have asked me, like, if I became firm, like, you know, can you still, and they ask me all these questions, you know, and do you still have fun? And I said, listen, I said, you guys aren't hopping. I said, if you're going to define sexuality in physical terms, at some point you're going to run up against some wall. You know, a, the physical by definition is finite. You might end up patronizing very strange stores in Greenwich Village before you get there, but at some point you're going to get there, and that's it. Okay? Like by definition, I said, but the spiritual is infinite, which means that if you rely on the spiritual side of your, of your relationship to constantly empower the physical side, there's no end to how profound an experience you can have. There can always be more. Okay? I remember that a girl once asked me a fairly explicit question. I wanted to be sure I was answering it correctly. I don't want to give her misinformation. So I consulted with a very ultra-Orthodox friend of mine. And she said, you know, tell the girl, you know, such and such. But she said, you know, you look in Kiev, you should know. She said that when a girl asks any kind of a question, you have to ask yourself, what is she really asking? 
What she's really asking is, if I became orthodox, would I still be able to have a good relationship, have fun, so to speak, sexually? And she just sighed and shook her head and she said, these secular teenagers don't even know what good sex is. Okay? What you have to try and reorient people towards, and it's all constantly reorient ourselves towards, is we live in such a sex-saturated society that's just really not what sex is. <laughs> it's a profound meeting of souls. It's an expression of who you are, your feelings for the person that you're with, which means that the way to constantly empower it is to constantly deepen the spiritual side of things. When you get married, if you had a constant green light, you would basically, more likely than not, obviously the love would develop and grow in some way in shape and form, but it's also very possible that you could stay on something of a plateau in your relationship. You know, you can be physical now, we're constantly expressing things, but ironically the best way for feelings to develop is in the absence of that very powerful physical bond which so often substitutes for something deeper. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've been really upset and what you really want is for somebody to tell you, I understand you. I've been there before. I can tell you what you must be feeling. I know what it's like. I'm there for you. And they can't do that and so they give you a hug instead. They try and comfort you physically. And it feels wonderful, but it's, it's, also, it's not the same either. Okay? There is a kind of bonding that occurs through verbal communication through a spiritual connection that as profound as physical closeness can feel and as much as it can bind people together and it certainly is the glue that binds in marriage that still is different qualitatively different than that when you're forced to have a period of separation whenever it occurs in marriage and people when they always talk about the family purity laws you all know what I'm talking about in the family purity laws? does anybody not know what I'm talking about? okay and they always talk about it, they talk about it's two weeks on, two weeks off. It's not really quite like that. This is the same religion that believes in large families. Mm-hmm. Like it always cracked me up. Two, I, two weeks on, two weeks off. When was that? You know, like I, okay, I had seven children, Kanaanahara. And uh, for many other women like me, it's, it's infrequent when it happens. And, you know, because you're pregnant, you're nursing, whatever, okay. But whenever it happens, whenever you and your husband have a break apart from one another physically, in a sense, what you're doing is being forced back into the situation that you were in when you were dating. You have another opportunity to try and get to know each other deeper without the, I, I would say, interference of the physical side, building up a genuine spiritual bond during that interval so that when you get back together at the end of those two weeks, your, your sexual relationship is expressing more. It's empowered because you have come one notch closer towards achieving that original oneness that, that man and woman were in the beginning. Now, I think many people, are, to be perfectly honest, are guilty of a little bit over-romanticizing the whole Neo business. It ain't easy. It's hard. It can be frustrating. There are times in which I have said to my husband, you know, I feel like a darn hypocrite growing up there in front of all those women talking about all this great communication that's supposed to be happening during this time of the month. Got it? You know, like, can we talk about it? Like, it doesn't always work out the way they paint it in books. But it's a very powerful centering effect on your relationship. Even just knowing that you two can go for two weeks without expressing your love for one another physically, even if you don't move up that notch, and closeness and understanding. The fact that you know our relationship can withstand this because what we have is so deep it transcends our ability to express it in this pleasurable way is one of the most powerful and securing things in a relationship that I can possibly imagine. And ideally, each time you do get closer and you can physically, you can be doing the same thing over and over but it's not the same thing because you've given it, you've bred it into the realm of the infinite and there's infinite potential for expressing the love between the two of you. Okay? Um, very often, after I give a whole class on, on dating, which I talk about other, other aspects of dating as well, and I want to just mention them very briefly. This Shoman against Nagia business was never conceived of to be used in a long-term relationship. Okay? This information is not included in my book. God willing, it will be in a future one. But... A couple once came to me and they said, you know, we're becoming more observant and we'd like to kind of take on this mitzvah. How would you suggest that we begin? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, we go to UC Davis together and, you know, we're in the same major. We're in most of the same classes. We spend all of our free time together. 
and we're not planning on getting married for at least a couple of years. So how would you suggest that we could like start being Shamanagia? You know what my answer was? Beats me. <laughs> no, I'm serious. To be perfectly honest, you're going to spend 24 hours a day with each other for the next two years and you're going to be Shamanagia? Like, that would be unhealthy. I mean, I hate to say it, like, that would probably wreck your relationship or when it does, and I know of a couple that this happened to, they were seeing so much of one another before they got married and they were being Shamanagia that the only way that they could deal with the tension was to completely numb themselves to it. And then when they got married, they had problems getting it back. They were used to relating like buddy-buddy. Well, marriage is not supposed to be buddy-buddy. It's supposed to be a romantic element there. Okay, so I just want to point out that this obviously raises the question, you know, what should I be dating for? And the answer obviously is that if you're not pretty close to the time at which you want to get married and you're going to try and be Shomanagia, then probably you shouldn't be dating. Okay, in other words, the whole business of not refraining from physical contact was meant to be used in a relationship that was leading up to making the decision, is this a person I want to marry? And once you decide it is, basically getting the wedding together as soon as you can and getting married. Celibacy is not normal and it's not natural. If I could call it a necessary evil, okay, maybe it's a little bit too strong, but it's something that you are supposed to do for a limited amount of time and then you're supposed to get into a normal relationship in which you can express all parts of yourself and that is the ideal. Okay? Hanging out for two years in becoming increasingly emotionally close to somebody that you're not going to touch is not what I call a healthy situation. So one of the things that people have to always consider when they're considering refraining from physical contact is maybe also reevaluating why I'm dating right now. And maybe I should just kind of hang back a little bit more from the opposite sex until I'm ready to think about the real thing. In which case the Shamanagir thing could be in in a more limited period with a direct purpose in mind. Okay? But when I give a whole talk on dating altogether, and I talk about also being introduced by a third party who knows enough about you to know that there's some reason why you should go out, that you won't be risking emotional involvement in a dead-end relationship, etc., etc. The answer I always get at the end, the question I always get at the end is, okay, everything you've said sounds logical. It sounds rational. You know, you want to be objective, objective and really know, blah, blah, blah. But, like, don't you religious people believe in romance? Where's the romance in religious dating? Okay, and I have to tell you that to me this answer is kind of laughable. Because I'm what I jokingly call a reality junkie. I made a decision long ago, back when I was in college and high school, that I was not going to do drugs. I was the only person I know who did this. Because I just didn't get it. What's the point? If I take this substance into my body... Hi. I take this substance into my body and it makes me have this experience and then the experience wears off and I'm back in the real world, then doesn't it make more sense to look for life's greatest pleasures here in the real world to begin with if I'm always going to end up back here anyway? There was this button that came out. It was actually a Lily Tomlin line, I think, it described to her. It says, reality is for people who can't cope with drugs. <laughs> okay? So that was me. I, could not, I couldn't cope with drugs. So when somebody asks me, you know, where is the romance in religious dating? I mean, my answer has to be, what are you talking about? You're looking for illusion? What could possibly be more romantic than having somebody say to you one day, you know, I've known you for however many months or however long it's been, and during that time I've really got to see, you know, what makes you special. I got to see the beautiful person that you are inside, how many good things there are about you. And I've also got to see some of your bad sides, too, you know, and I, I can deal. I can live with that, too. Part of a picture I like. Take the package deal, right? Okay? And I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Even though I don't even know what it feels like to kiss you, hug you, or touch you, because I love you and I want you for who you are. There is no more romantic statement than that. And I really ask myself, how many people are really capable of saying that? Really, really know that that's what they have today. A woman came to my door a few years ago, and she said, you know, I was in your class in Discovery a couple of years ago, and at the end of the class, you said something that stuck with me for the past two years that had such an impact on me. What was it? Just that. Being loved for who you are. And she said, I want you to know, at the time I was married, I have since gotten divorced, and the reason why is because I realized my husband never loved me for who I was. That was so painful to me. 
Okay, this is the bond that makes a relationship endure. You know, when I was 13 years old, people started getting divorced. When I was growing up, I know this might sound strange in today's day and age, I didn't have a single friend whose parents were divorced. Not one. In the 60s, up the early 70s, the ball started rolling. And it really started rolling to the point now where my parents and their generation and their social circle and their very conservative traditional people they are, with the exception of one of the couple, the only remaining couple who are still married. These are all my friends' parents. They're all like gone. You know what I mean? My parents are still married after 44 years. They're, they're like a relic from the past, you know? In, in, and they're completely non-religious. Okay? When I was 13, divorce started happening. One of my friends' parents got separated. The mother hung herself. Okay? And I, obviously, I'm sure she was... A, disturbed and very insecure and needy woman, whatever it was. But the fact that she was the only one didn't help. You know what I'm saying? She had no support group, <laughs> practically. Okay? And I remember going to my parents when I was about 13, and I remember saying to them, you know, Debbie's parents just split up. I said, you know, do you, I said to my mother, do you think you and Daddy will ever get divorced? Like, it's, I was very naive, and I just asked them straight up front. I wanted to know, like, is my life the way it is a given or should I expect any changes, you know? And to this day, I remember the scene as my mother answered the question. She was standing in the entrance of the dining room. My father was next to her. She put her arm around his waist and looked up at him with a smile and said, I don't think so. And I'm looking back and I thought, oh, God, my parents will never get divorced. I can sleep at night, you know? Like looking back on it, I was so naive. Like, the fact that they said that, so, I mean, it's nice to hear, but this is, you know, I'm sure plenty of other people have said that, and it didn't work out that way. But thank God they were right. My oldest child is now 14, hitting adolescence. Anybody has any advice? Please talk to me after class. Okay. <laughs> okay. And um, he has seen, I hate to say it, he has seen more divorce in the Orthodox world, okay, than I saw in the non-Orthodox world growing up. Okay, and this should all give us pause. Okay, we are not immune, by no means. Everything that's out there is coming here. I have a number of friends who are divorced. And I hope they'll never have to ask me the question, but it's entirely possible that one day he's going to come to me and he's going to say, Ima, you know, so-and-so's divorced, and Shari's divorced, and Debbie's divorced, and Julie's divorced. You know, do you think that you and Ava will ever get divorced? I hope it'll never even occur to him to ask the question. If he does, I have my answer ready. It's like one of those questions you want to have thought about before you answer it, like where do babies come from? You want to map out a careful, correct, accurate, age-appropriate answer, right? So um, what I'm going to say to him like this, I'm going to say to him like this, look, sweetheart, I'm not a prophet, and I'd be a liar if I could tell you anything with 100% certainty, because that's just not the way the world is. But when people get divorced, among other things, they usually say, we don't love each other anymore. Okay? We don't love each other anymore. I said, you know, because of the way your father and I got to know each other and the relationship that we developed, when I married him, the part of him that I felt that I loved, that I knew that I loved, it wasn't even really quite love, but I felt whatever you want to call it at that stage, intense affection, okay, which I only realized afterwards, maybe it's the beginnings of love, let's call it, okay? The part of him that I felt that I loved, and it really was part that I felt a connection to, was his neshama. And the part of me that he fell for and became attached to and felt that he loved was my neshama. Okay? And, you know, God only gives the neshama once. And that's what you have for the rest of your life. So as long as I always have my neshama and he always has his neshama, then we'll always love each other. And I don't think, therefore, there'll be any reason that we'll want to get divorced. This is the most honest answer you can tell a kid. It's, it's honest and it's also hopeful and positive. And I think it's an answer we all want to, and the single women in the crowd, you all want to be able to tell your own kids someday, and the mothers in the crowd, you want to make sure, okay, that you're going to be able to tell your present kids and that your kids are going to be able to tell their kids, okay? And the way is letting a kid see how a genuine spiritual bond is formed and feeling how meaningful it is to the point where they'll feel that, why would I want to compromise this for the sake of some transient physical pleasure? And it's a hard thing to pull off during the teenage years, okay? But if you can start instilling it now, you have a better fighting chance of, of letting them stand up to peer pressure in this area, okay? Even within the Orthodox world, from outside the Orthodox world, fortify them with this.
Okay? You want to be loved, married to someone who loves you for who you are, and there's a way to get there. I am talking about one aspect of the Orthodox recipe. Okay, this is by no means the only factor that goes into a successful marriage. I believe it's a very critical one, but it is not. You want to hear my opinion on this? Okay, look, there's a lot of reasons. Marriages also fail because people have unrealistic marital expectations that have been unconsciously entered into them through the media. Okay? They also fail, and this is a big thing, and I'm writing a big tirade about this in my next book because I feel very upset about this particular issue. They also fail because people have not realized that marital expectations have changed and shifted so much in the past 25 years that the approach to dating has to parallel that. When my great-grandparents, who probably were from, my, great, my grandparents, no, my, my great-great-grandparents, I assume, were from. That's how far you have to go back with my family, okay? I just, and they met and married and dated. I don't want to say they had lower expectations of marriage, but they were different, okay? And so, therefore, based on what their expectations were, they could know each other not so well, date a few times, and they could end up happily married, and it really could work. Today, our expectations have gone through the ceiling, Okay? And a lot of them are good and healthy. I think that I'm benefiting by a depth of a spiritual bond and connection with my husband that maybe my great-grandparents didn't have. Although I don't want to say they didn't have as much love as me. It's a qualitatively different kind of love. I'm happy with it. I like it. I'm glad I have it. But that basically means that I'm looking for something much more specific. Okay? And, it also, and, and that basically means also that I'm going to have to take a lot more time to get to know the person that I want to marry. I am very, very disturbed by the increasing trend in the Orthodox world today towards almost going back from the previous generation to shorter and shorter dating periods. I mean, I know people who are getting married after two and three weeks, and this is normal. And for a lot of them, it works, and it's fine, and they should God bless them, they should live long and have long, happy marriages. For an awful lot more people out there, that is incredibly dangerous. It's not even enough time to see if the guy has an abusive personality, never mind seeing if he's the right, you know, if he's the right match for you. Okay? Now, the other thing is also that because we are doing more of our own choosing these days, in the past, parents used to arrange matches, more or less. They'd pick out appropriate partners. You'd meet a few times. You'd basically approve or veto the suggestion. Today, there's still a matchmaker. Or there's still someone deciding, but it's not the parents anymore. You know what it is? You're unconscious. Your attraction to somebody is going to be dictated by a whole lot of unconscious factors, things that you're not even aware of, based upon your parents' relationship, childhood wounds that you're carrying with you into adulthood, which you are unconsciously hoping your spouse to heal for you. The psychology of attraction is very complex. So you can be psychologically drawn to somebody who feels right. This is it, and they can be the worst person in the world for you, but it feels right. Feeling right today means it feels like this is a person who can... This is only part of it. Who can give me what my parents never gave me, for example, on an unconscious level. Okay? That doesn't necessarily mean that you can be able to have a good or easy relationship. It means this relationship has a potential to give you something, but whether it does, does or not, depends on how much baggage the two of you have. Okay? So people, I think the Orthodox world, first of all, has become very aware that our marital expectations are much more complex. It requires a longer period of dating. And the typical rebuttal that you will get to this from the Orthodox world, which is very understandable, is but we're afraid they're going to mess it up on physical relationships if they go out too long and they start getting close because it gets hard. So let me ask you all something, okay? Back in medieval times, people married at ages 13 and 14 for this very reason. They figure as soon as those hormones kick in, get them married, right? Okay? Would anyone in their right mind suggest that we do that today? Marry off our kids at 15. It would be a recipe for disaster, right? So what does that mean? That means that from the time that you start feeling an attraction to the opposite sex, you're going to have to repress that. That's that dirty word, right? Repress that, okay, for a number of years until it's appropriate for you to get married. And there's no other option. You can't get married at 15 anymore. I would like to suggest that the same thing is true for longer dating periods. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it is definitely a challenge to remain Shomenagia with somebody who's been going out for three months as opposed to three weeks. But what is your option? What is your choice? In this day and age, marrying someone after three weeks? Again, there are still pockets of the community for whom it works. It definitely does. But for an increasing number of people, it's not appropriate. Okay? And, in terms, and also, my other suggestion is I really firmly believe, and this is going to sound weird maybe, I really believe that people, before they start doing marriage, should get some kind of counseling to begin to uncover who they are, 
what their unconscious desires and needs are and expectations for marriage and that when they when they get to I always say there's a horrible expression hook up unfortunately I have such negative connotations today when they connect up with something they underpinnings of the relationship Hashkafa is not enough today you, hashkafa is the basis of everything you have to know what marriage is you have to know what love is you know what it means giving and it means compromise and stuff you have to get all the hashkafa down and in addition to hashkafa you have to get a little bit of psychological self-awareness Okay, so I personally feel that these are major contributing factors to why there's more divorce in the Orthodox world today, in addition to the infiltration of foreign notions about what marriage is, which can't be handled by Hashkafa. Hashkafa means outlook, philosophical outlook. Okay? Other questions? Yeah? If I could put a realistic time frame on dating, you know, <laughs> it's like I'd be the most popular person around. Okay? It's not easy. It's definitely unnatural in a very deep sense to be, to be you know, celibate, to be shaman and for however long it takes. And unfortunately, it has to be for however long it takes. However, it's a very important carrot on a stick. Because as long as you can continue to delude yourself that you're getting some measure of satisfaction in relationships through less than ultimate relationships because they have the physical side, you can kind of coast on and coast on like this for a long time. The fact that you're saying, whoa, I am never going to do anything against physical until it's with the right person should be a, a further spur to really getting your act together, looking at yourself, what do I have to work on, what do I have to think about, how can I grow, what should I be doing to make the real thing happen. Okay, so it's not, an, I mean, it's painful to be single for a long time, but it's not the alternative of, you know, not doing this would, would obviously not be, uh, not be better. The thing that I'm also concerned about in Bali Chuva is because we've been so sexualized and sex has been so rampant in the side that we come from that even after your Shomanagia, you can still conduct a relationship in a very, um, we're not doing anything, but we're really majorly playing with all this energy. Okay? Um, you can still be very, very sexual, and the sexual overtones can still overtake deeper, more spiritual sides of the relationship, even if you're not acting on them. Because we've been taught how to turn a man's head, how to give his attention, how to be sexy. And you certainly want to look attractive, but I would go so far as to say, I don't really know if you want to look really overtly sexy on a date, in a from dating thing, you know? I just, you know, I don't think that's the first foot you want to put forward here, okay? So it's more a matter of learning how to tone yourself down, not just in your behavior, but in your self-presentation, to give somebody the opportunity to see the deeper you. So that's more about sneered and outside inside kind of stuff, okay? Yeah. Any other questions? Basically, I always tell people this is like the acid test to see if you've got a good guy, okay? If you're dating in a relationship in which you're both kind of like in process, you're not completely religious yet, and you might actually have been sold on this idea a bit more than he has, and you know completely well that he's a very good guy, but he might not even look twice at you if you just basically land this bomb in his lap in the first ten minutes of your first date. By the way, <laughs> I just want you to know, you know, so what I advise women who are, you know, less religious and in process, I say, listen, you know, imagine if, you know, at some point it feels comfortable in the day to talk about this, or maybe even if it gets to the point on that evening, on date number three, late in the evening, whatever it is, when it feels like this is a time that would feel comfortable for something to happen physically, I said, just stop a second, okay? Just look him in the eyes and say, you know what? I just want you to know that... I find you very attractive and, you know, part of me obviously would enjoy taking a step into a physical relationship with you, but I also really, really like you and I'm really enjoying getting to know you. And I can't help but feel that if we just put off the physical part for some time that we could really get to know and appreciate each other deeper and see if there really could be something between us. If a guy says goodbye, what should your response be? Goodbye. Exactly. Okay, any guy who's worth anything might not be overjoyed at the suggestion, okay, you know, ravingly enthusiastic, but he will say, hopefully, and he should say, okay, um, I'm curious to talk about this a little bit more, understand what's going on here, but yeah, I'm willing to give this a try. That's three days, okay? I'll try this for three days. I guarantee you that at the end of three days, he's going to see what it's doing. He's going to feel the change in the relationship. He's going to know that this is not what I felt before in other relationships. Something different has the potential of happening here. Then you can continue to sell him on, on more. 
Okay? So I don't have anything against, you know, it's exactly the opposite of what women are doing today. They're hooking in a man sexually with a, uh, with a kind of promise or hope in the wings of something spiritual. I see the other thing. I say, hook him in on the spiritual. <laughs> you know what I mean? And let him know that, you know, if this ever works out, well, yes, obviously a physical relationship will be part of the story. Okay? Preferably when we're married. <laughs> okay? But again, I, I think one of the saddest things today is the fact that women are no longer giving men credit for being spiritual beings. We have been to- so told to think of them as incurable animals. You can't have any expectations of these guys. And, you know, our expectations are so low. I'm so excited to say, you know, these guys are human too. They're spiritual. There's an awful lot of really good guys that they're just waiting to be uncovered. But you might have to do the uncovering. You might have to awaken them to their own spiritual potential. And they'll thank you for having done it. And you might reap a very big reward in the end. Yeah. I don't think so. I wish they were. They're for sale outside. Thank you all very much.